So I'm going to be doing a bit of a whistle-stop tour through the 20th century. Uh, and um, I've called this the, the age of voluntarism. Um, so I'm going to deal with six topics. What is voluntarism? Uh, 1906 and, and the aftermath of it. The, the 1920s, effectively. What I've christened the golden age of voluntarism after the Second World War the uh, crisis of voluntarism, and then, as has already been alluded to, the beginning of the uh, Thatcherite uh, counter-revolution. So um, what is voluntarism? That, the picture here is... I'll sit down. The picture here is uh, Otto Kahn Freund, who has some claims to being the uh, father of voluntarism, uh, and he was um, one of those... Uh, brilliant uh, refugees from uh, Central Europe, Jewish intellectuals who came to Britain in the 1930s. He had, in fact, been a Labour law judge in Weimar, Germany, uh, and he became, after the war, the first um, professor of, of the, the then new subjects of Labour law in the, in the UK at the LSE. And he was said to have, quotes, created the analytical edifice that housed all scholars of Labour law. And he dubbed the British system of uh, voluntarism or collective laissez-faire as being uh, the retreat of the law from industrial relations and of industrial relations from the law. So really picking up what Jim was talking about, um, the main objective of this legal scholar and those who followed him was to keep the law um, as far away as possible uh, from... Um, uh, industrial disputes, uh, and uh, t for the um, uh, uh, the uh, establishment, as it were, to, to butt out. Now, um, that um, approach is very influential, particularly in the uh, intellectual life of labour law uh, in the post-war period. Bill Wedderburn, who's really Karl Freund's, uh, one of his disciples, said that when uh, Karl Freund appeared at the LSE, it was like Lenin arriving at the Finland station in 1917. But it wasn't just uh, Karl Freund who thought that. So, um, for example, in 1911, one finds uh, Winston Churchill, uh, quite a class warrior himself on many issues, saying in a debate on uh, Labour legislation in the House of Commons, where class issues are involved, it's impossible to pretend that the courts command the same degree of general confidence as they do in relation to crime uh, and so on. So, um, 1906, uh, Jim's uh, touched on that already, and um, it has rightly been described as a landmark in the history of uh, labour law, uh, and um, it reversed a whole series of decisions which the courts had reached in the 1890s and early 1900s, uh, which had had the effect of undermining the 1870s uh, industrial settlement. So um, it, it was uh, a, a, an overt uh, objective of 1906 to say to the courts, you, have, you are to have no part in industrial disputes for the reason uh, that uh, Churchill uh, alluded to a few years later. Now, the, the, 
that we're now obviously in the run-up to the uh, First World War. Uh, the unions have had a big period of expansion, as Jim referred to, with the so-called new unionism at the end of the 19th century. So we're moving away from the idea simply of craft unions, but also general unions, and that leads to a good deal of industrial militancy in the 1890s and, and 1900s. Now, um, the courts are not quite done. There's a case just before the First World War called Osborne, in which the House of Lords um, said that, the, the, that uh, trade unions did not have the power to collect uh, funds for political purposes, the so-called political levy. And the way in which that is dealt with is a sort of classic instance of the voluntarist approach. The courts try to intrude, and Parliament immediately says, no, none of your business. And so the Liberal government, just before the war, passes the Trade Union Act, which permits the uh, practice of, um, uh, of um, fund, political funds uh, once more. Now, um, as... Uh, Jim referred to, the, Royal, the 1906 Act was preceded by, as had most of the other legislation uh, that uh, Jim referred to, been preceded by a Royal Commission of the Great and the Good. And one of the ideas that is floating about at this period is um, sh rather than simply having a situation where the courts try and intrude, the courts are always asserting freedom of contract, so they are inherently hostile to uh, trade unions and to uh, strikes and combinations on. Uh, rather than simply saying to the courts, get out, should one try and have uh, a, a more positive system of uh, legal regulation? Uh, Sydney Webb, Jim's already referred to him, floats that idea uh, in the 1906 uh, the report, which is, uh, precedes 1906, of which the government took absolutely no notice. Uh, but no one really shows much enthusiasm for that. And so um, in, in this period, and I'm really talking now about the sort of run-up to the First World War, immediately period after the First World War, the, the judges retreat from the battlefield uh, bloodied and, and unbowed, or, and bowed. Uh, and so, for example, one can see uh, Lord Justice Scrutton, who's a, a well-known commercial judge, gives a lecture in Cambridge in 1921 and says, um, well, it's, it's very difficult being a judge in these cases because uh, you have someone in front of you who's of your class and someone in front of you who's not of your class. And, and one thing that's uh, interesting in the discourse of the 1920s, for example, is that um, there is absolutely no... Uh, inhibition of referring to people as being working class. So the political elite, the, the Baldwins and the Churchills, um, don't pretend that they are of the same class uh, as the working class, and the working class are a, a sort of a strange, unknown tribe in the north of England and, and elsewhere. Uh, and um, that Quoting here Devlin, much later, we'll come to the dockers in due course, but um, there is doubt in judicial circles as to whether the law can really be made to work uh, in this sort of context. So uh, in the 1920s, uh, the unions are enjoying a bit of a boom. So trade union membership has gone up to over 8 million. Uh, I think at the turn of the century, it's about 4 million. Uh, unemployment is relatively low, of course, a huge number of young men have been wiped out in the war. Um, there are a lot of strikes after the war. 
culminating in the uh, general strike of 1926, and uh, the Labour Party is expanding the number of people who are paying the levy to the uh, Labour Party are also is also expanding. Um, at the level of high politics, of course, we now have a game of musical chairs in a two-party system. Who is to be left? If Labour is emerging as one of the parties, will it be the Liberals or will it be the Tories? And so there is an element of anxiety uh, in the Tory party about the rise of Labour, both the Labour Party and Labour as represented by the trade unions. Um, and um, the, uh, one of the issues which arises in this period is the levy. Churchill talks about liberating workmen from the thraldom of the levy. Uh, and another issue which arises, and this is an issue which we will return to and we will return to again and again, is should uh, there be some power to stop particular strikes which threaten uh, the public good uh, or vital concerns. Uh, and there's also concern, which we see again perhaps in GCHQ, for example, in the 1980s, is should people in trade unions be allowed to be uh, working in the civil service? So um, that is the backdrop. So that's the general strike in uh, 1926. Um, and. Uh, Four million people go on strike in a number of industries, uh, and the strike is defeated. Uh, but um, that is a challenge to the voluntarist principle, as the country appears to be heading on, on one view towards, uh, in the view of the Daily Mail, certainly is heading towards the rise of the Soviets, um, should the court stand uh, idly by. And that uh, there's a, a decision during the course of the strike uh, in which um, a judge says that the general strike is uh, illegal because there isn't a trade dispute. This is effectively a, a political challenge to Her Majesty's government. Um, and uh, Sir John Snyman, Simon, whose nickname, if anyone's interested, was Snake. Simon, so not, not a man you would want to trust. Um, his, his grandson, incidentally, is a member of my constituency Labour Party, but that's by the by. Uh, but anyway, he was a prominent Liberal, and he denounces the strike as unconstitutional and unlawful. And there was a big debate among uh, lawyers at the time as to whether a strike in which the trade unions as a whole, if that was the correct characterisation, the trade unions as a whole took on the elected government as a whole, was that a trade dispute? And if so, was it lawful or not? And other lawyers took a different view. So at this point, we have a Conservative government led by Stanley Baldwin. Uh, there are a number of uh, hotheads in the Tory party, led by Churchill, Birkenhead, and people like that, uh, who want to take very uh, strong action uh, against the trade unions. Eventually, after a long period of debate, um, uh, an act is passed in 1927. Um, uh, it, it is tortuously worded, but effectively what it's seeking to do is to say that if you have uh, a general strike, which isn't a trade dispute, then it isn't covered by the 1906 Act. Um, there is also uh, an attempt at prohibiting what is described as intimidatory picketing, and intimidation uh, is a term to which we will come again and again uh, in the course of uh, debate over trade union law and practice. Um, uh, the Act, as did the recent Trade Union Act, uh, seeks to ban uh, contracting uh, 
uh, out. So if you're going to make it pay for the political levy, you have to positively contract in. Uh, and there are also provisions which are seeking to uh, prevent civil servants from joining uh, trade unions, uh, though they can join staff associations, uh, and also seeking to prevent local authorities uh, from having, as it were, pro-union policies. And of course, by this stage, one is starting to get, in certain areas of the country, Labour Party local authorities, which are sympathetic to Labour uh, in their areas. Now, uh, if um, the uh, period between 1911 and 1926 was a strong period for the trade unions. The period between 1927 and 1939 was quite the opposite. And of course, um, shortly after the 1927, uh, 1926-27 Act, uh, one has the Wall Street crash, the Great Depression, huge levels of unemployment, um, and the uh, and also the Labour minority government 29 to 31 disintegrates and we then have a Tory landslide effectively in the 1930s. So this is a bleak period for the Labour movement and the number of strikes which as you remember were in the tens of millions in the period between 1911 and 1926 uh, go down to virtually nothing. Uh, there is a big fall in levy payers to the uh, trade unions, the Daily Herald, which has been financed by that, up to that time, has to seek alternative means of finance. Uh, trade union sh membership falls as unemployment rises, and at the peak of the, or the depth of the depression, uh, you see there that there's only 4 million people in the unions and over 20% uh, unemployment. Q the, um, in a sense, the voluntarist uh, principle is not really being tested very much at this stage. There are hardly any strikes, and therefore there aren't many opportunities for the courts or the employers to get involved uh, in the law. But uh, nonetheless, the uh, judicial uh, reticence, which I referred to with Lord Justice Scrutton uh, a moment ago, seems to have slightly become bred in the bone by this stage. Uh, and, and for example, uh, in, in a famous case called Crofter and Veach in 1942, in the House of Lords, Lord Wright says, the right of workmen to strike is an essential element of the principle of collective bargaining. And Wedderburn describes that case as being a high point of judicial uh, non-intervention. Uh, uh, of course, there are emergency um, uh, regulations in place during the war in any event. Now, uh, so we get to uh, 1945, and we then enter what, what, I, what I regard as the golden age of voluntarism between the end of the war and the late 1960s. I mean, this, this isn't... Um, this, that golden age tag doesn't doesn't have any authority behind it other than, than mine on these slides. So it's not an accepted it's not an accepted term. But but I think I think most most people would agree that the uh, unions have a pretty good run between the war and the uh, financial crisis of the 1970s. So uh, trade union membership goes up and reaches an all-time high, ironically, in 1979. Trade union density goes up. And also, as Jim referred to, and was certainly the case in the, say, the 1920s, trade unionism is synonymous with male workers, particularly 
uh, in heavy industry, the mines, the steelwork, shipbuilding, and so on and so forth. But one starts to see, as the post-war era goes on, that uh, the trade unions are expand. We'll come to this in a moment. Expanding among uh, female workers, and also expanding into what are traditionally regarded as white-collar uh, industries. And the trade unions do a very good job in terms of protecting the interests of their members. So in terms of national income, profits fall and wages rise in broad terms. Uh, the shop floor becomes much stronger. And this is, of course, as you all know, against the backdrop that this is an economic golden age of full employment, rising real wages, etc., etc. So. Um, and this is also the period that, that Karl Freud, as I said earlier, becomes the first UK professor of labour law, uh, and he becomes very influential uh, amongst the intellectuals who look at this area. So Wedderburn, for example, follows Karl Freud to the chair of labour law at the LSE, uh, and there's also a very powerful group of uh, scholars in, in Oxford, people like uh, Hugh Clegg and Bill McCarthy, uh, Fox, Flanders, all these sort of people who are pumping out um, arguments in favour of uh, the voluntarist approach. Now, um, sorry? Sorry, I'm talking sorry. To so so uh, Labour loses the election in 1951, the Tories come in, and um, one might regard uh, Walter Monckton, who's pictured there uh, cheerily resolving a strike with someone who I think is the General Secretary of the NUR, but don't quote me on that. Um, he is the sort of embodiment. Yeah, it's not, it's not Sugu, I think. Anyway, anyway, he embodies the uh, voluntarist principle. So Monckton is a Tory grandee. He's, Churchill appoints him as Minister of Labour, uh, and he gets on like a house on fire with the unions. So, for example, you see uh, Arthur Deakin saying in 1953, Monckton's given us a square deal, and we've been able to do things that were difficult under our own people. He's referring there to the um, Attlee government and all of the ministers of Labour in this period, who include 5164 when the Tories are in power, who include Ted Headteeth, um, take the same view that their role, one of them said, was to smooth the relationships between uh, employers and unions. And um, the principle that the law should stay out is very much adhered to. There's very little positive legislation. Wedderburn in 1965, just at the end of that Tory era, writes a, a famous book called The Worker and the Law, and really um, the law doesn't have much to say. There's a bit of common law in relation to employers and employees. Things like unfair dismissal all are in the future, and in relation to collective action, uh, the Act uh, keeps the courts away. Uh, and interestingly, most people in the Tory party, with one very significant, one or two very significant um, exceptions, seem happy enough with that. So one finds uh, Ian MacLeod, when he's Minister of Labour, writing privately to Enoch Powell in 1956 and says, we can't do anything about the trade unions. They are in a state of the realm. Um, now, the, there is a a pamphlet which people look back on later called A Giant Strength in 1958. Some Tory lawyers write and seem to be slightly fretting about it. But the, the important exception to all this is, is uh, Enoch Powell. Um, and he says sarcastically after the end of this period, the party came into office in 51 without any specific commitment on the unions. And it faithfully carried out that non-commitment <laughs> for 13 years. Now, just as a slight um, side angle to this, um, 
I, I said at a conference uh, a few months ago that we are all power lights now, and that was met with merry laughter. But I mean, what, what is important to realise is that Powell throughout this period is challenging the Tory consensus, both on the economic policy and or trade union policy, and ultimately, of course, on European policy as well. And, and his views then are regarded as eccentric, and they are, of course, now absolutely mainstream Tory and, to some extent, new Labour views. Anyway, so... Um, I think the Bolting Brothers film was 57 or 58. Peter Sellers there in the middle uh, as the uh, uh, trade union uh, shop steward. Um, and what's, um, what's, what's interesting, in fact, in the, in the golden era is that, in fact, um, certainly um, perhaps putting the 1970s to one side, is that if you could look at the sort of Western economies, the standout performer in terms of lots of strikes is the US. The standout performer in terms of hardly any strikes at all is West Germany and uh, Sweden as well. And we and, and the French are sort of somewhere in the middle. So um, I'm all right, Jack. Uh, it is uh, propaganda rather than truth. And um, the courts uh, generally remain uh, quiescent. There is a case called uh, Rooks and Barnard in, in 1964 which goes over this issue uh, of uh, intimidation and which says that in the particular circumstances, a closed shop situation, the 1906 Act uh, doesn't uh, apply, doesn't assist the unions. But as soon as Labour comes in in 1964, they pass another Trade Disputes Act, which effectively reverses Rooks and Barnard. So that's very much the same sort of pattern as we saw with Osborne uh, earlier on. So Labour has, comes into power in 1964, um, sets up in 65 the Donovan Commission. And this is sort of a bit of a voluntarist um, stitch up. So Hugh Clegg and Otto Kahn Freud are, are on the uh, commission. Donovan is a law lord, senior judge, but he has been a Labour MP. Bill McCarthy is the research director. Sid Green, that uh, John referred to, I think isn't in that photograph, but he was General Secretary of the NUR later, tells Donovan, well, we'll be much happier if, you don't have, if we don't have anything to do with the law at all. Um, and effectively, that's pretty much where Donovan gets to, although some of its members don't agree. Um, and the other, the other thing that's happening in the 60s is that uh, Parliament is intervening more and more in the employment relationship. So we've got race relations acts, we've got sex discrimination acts, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that is presenting a potential problem for voluntarism because if people are going to be going to the courts or tribunals to assert their rights over race or sex or whatever it may be, uh, should the courts uh, be kept out of other areas. But um, so I've lost the top part of that slide. So that says voluntarism under attack. 1968 to 1974. Now, um, if, if the period in the 50s was the golden era, the 60s start to see cracks in the system. So the first thing is that um, uh, the Tories lose the election in 64. They go away to review their policies. And one big area they review is trade union policy. And in 65, they publish something called Fair Deal at Work, which is the precursor to the 1971 Industrial Relations Act. Um, that is, is giving with one hand and taking with another. So it's going to give rights for unfair dismissal. 
uh, but on the other hand, uh, it is also going to <coughs> seek to define immunities much more narrowly and require trade unions to register in order to obtain immunity and give powers to the Minister of Labour to restrain strikes for a cooling off period. Um, but um, if we're looking for the, the uh, assassinator of voluntarism, should we look at Barbara Castle, who is, of course, Minister of Labour uh, in the late 1960s? And she brings forward in 1969 under the Labour government in place of strife. Uh, it doesn't go as far as the Tory proposals, but it does propose cooling off periods and strike ballots. And there's a huge row in the Labour movement, and eventually Wilson and Callaghan uh, retreat um, at the behest, amongst others, of Jim Callaghan, uh, and uh, nothing really happens about him in place of strife. Um, one other thing that's happening in the 60s is prices and incomes policy, so unions are increasingly being drawn into uh, making economic policy, uh, or the making of economic policy, and one sees the rise of the idea of corporatism. So you've all seen Made in Dagenham. Those are the Ford machinists in 1968 complaining about their unequal pay. Uh, and um, one can see in the late 60s, early 70s, a number of developments which are bringing the law more and more into play. So you've got the Ford strike and then sort of the equal pay legislation. You've got uh, the TUC saying it's opposed to sex discrimination, which it hadn't been before. We've got the rise of uh, European regulation and also more and more race re re legislation. The Tories win the 1970 election. They bring into power the 1971 Act. Uh, and I've t uh, so I'm starting out of time here, but that, that uh, uh, sets up the National Industrial Relations Court, the NERC. Um, and the Act is a complete disaster uh, in seeking to enforce a positive uh, system of law. And one of, one of the problems that the Heath government has is that inflation is rising and they decide they're going to have a prices and incomes policy. They're going to bring the trade unions into, trade, into uh, economic policy making. Very difficult to do um, if you're at war with them on the industrial front. One of the things that uh, it was said that uh, the Act would bring about was uh, industrial peace. It notably fails. Uh, that's the battle of, famous Battle of Saltley Gate in 1972. Um, and um, one of the things that um, the Act also shows, many people think, is that the law doesn't work in this area uh, and uh, that the Act has merely reinforced the deep distrust of the judicial system, uh, which Churchill had referred to uh, 60 years earlier. So uh, Labour wins the 74 elections, effectively reverses the Act, except it keeps the section of the Act, 71 Act, which deals with unfair uh, dismissal, and the Tories go off into opposition to lick their wounds. Um, and so between Thatcher becomes Tory leader in 75, and starts to leave, lead her party in a very different uh, direction. The Wilson and Callaghan government, however, uh, take a voluntarist position, though with, as I've said, some of this social legislation or things like Race Relations Act. Um, and uh, 
John perhaps can, can tell us about this better, better than anyone else, but certainly in the uh, 70s, there's a very close relationship between the trade union leadership and the Labour government. Um, and so one sees Dennis Healy saying the Labour Party and the TUC depend uh, on each other. Uh, and again, we have pay policy. Jack Jones of the TNG is absolutely central to that. It's a notionally voluntary policy, but it isn't really. Now, one of the big disputes of the 70s is at Grunwick, which neatly brings together the themes of race, gender, uh, and the unions. Um, and um, one of the things that Grunwick spawns is the rise of the NAF, the National Association for Freedom, now known as the Freedom Association. Um, and they and the right wing of the Tory party, Jim Pryor, I think was referred to, was the Tory party's employment spokesman at this stage. And he is a voluntarist to his fingertips. He is Walter Monckton uh, reincarnated, um, uh, the bluff country farmer. But he's under a lot of pressure from the right wing of the Tory party, people like Keith Joseph, and the NAF are really the provisional wing of the uh, Tory party on this issue. They get very involved in the uh, Grumwick dispute, including, uh, ironically, in the light of subsequent events, taking proceedings in the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, and um, on the right of the Tory party, we see a determined uh, argument to draw to tear up the voluntarist settlement. So there's a lot of pressure within the Tory party on the closed shop, to abolish closed shop picketing, restrict picketing, uh, restrict payments to strikers' families, to restrict the right to strike in industries, which we've seen referred to earlier, and also uh, Ridley and others are gearing up for what eventually becomes the 1984 uh, miners' strike. Um, so Pryor, on the other hand, as I say, is, is taking a Monktonian line. His refrain is, we should have no legislative field day. Uh, he wants to develop personal contacts with union leaders. He spends a lot of time going out to lunch uh, with uh, union leaders and industrial correspondents. And by, 19, by the time the Thatcher government wins in 1979, um, their proposals are, in fact, uh, extremely limited. So uh, they're going to look at secondary picketing. They're going to have a code of practice. If people want funds for union ballots, they can have them. And it, interestingly, the, the CBI are absolutely in favour of that uh, proposal. They don't want to have legislation. Then we have the winter of discontent in 1978. That's Leicester Square there, 1979. Um, and that um, gives the much more power to the elbow of Thatcher, Tebbit uh, and Joseph and puts Pryor uh, very much on the back foot. Though not sufficiently that the Tory manifesto of 79, as I say, still retains a very uh, limited uh, set of proposals. So. Uh, where do we get to then? So voluntarism had a good run in those 70-odd years, and it had real intellectual depth to it. Um, for much of the period, it wasn't put to much of the a stress test in the sense that, for example, the law had little to do in the 1930s in any event. Um, I would question how committed the Tory party was to this approach for much of the period, with the exception of the sort of Millen era in the 50s. But there were also strains on the left, 
uh, of which Barbara Castle uh, is an exemplar. She was very involved in promoting uh, e uh, equality legislation. She was also involved in promoting in place of strife, and there was obviously a tension between legislative intervention in that respect and the general idea that the law should stay out. Um, and then the system obviously in this regard, as in others, began to fray at the edges in the 1970s. And I just end up with some um, counterfactual questions for consideration. Could voluntarism have survived if um, the unions and Barbara Castle had reached some form of compromise in 1969? Or if uh, Dennis Healy and Jim Callaghan had not proposed a 5% pay policy going into the winter of 1978-9, or Jim Callaghan had not uh, quoted Mary Lloyd in 1978 but had called an election, or uh, outside my period if the left had remained stronger and more united in the 1980s. So um, that's, uh, I'm afraid, a little bit rapid, but that's um, my tour through the, uh, that period. Thanks so much.